This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Micah Utrecht, Associate Editor at Jacobin. The horrors of the Trump administration have shown no signs of slowing in the month that he's been in office. But so far, neither have the incredible amount of pushback that we've seen in the streets. The protests have reminded writer Ellie Mae O'Hagan of the anti-austerity protests in the United Kingdom, both in terms of the hope they represent and the potential dangers and pitfalls they face. She wrote about both in a recent article for Jacobin, Lessons from the Anti-Austerity Movement. Ellie Mae O'Hagan is a frequent contributor to The Guardian who lives in London. So Ellie, first, can you just describe what your involvement in the anti-austerity movement in the UK was? Uh, yeah, I mainly organized with a group called UK Uncut. Um, and what we did was uh, we used to do sit-down protests in shops th- that had not paid their taxes. So it was really a protest against tax avoidance. And the argument that we used to make is that the government wouldn't have to make spending cuts if big businesses paid their taxes. Um, it lasted from October 2010. And it, it lasted as a movement for about three years after that, but it kind of dissipated as time went on. So that was mainly uh, how I organised in the anti-cuts movement. But obviously we all, everybody who was involved in it was sort of interlinked in some way. So I would go to student occupations and hang out with the student movement. And, you know, I'm still friends with a few people from that movement now. And um, I actually worked for the trade unions for a couple of years as well. So I was sort of involved in, in that. And I went to Occupy London a lot and did a few things there. So... So even though that was my section of the um, anti anti austerity movement, you know we did we did all kind of come together as well. How did it feel to be a part of that movement? You say in the piece that in many ways it was some of the best times of your life. Yeah, it was. It was amazing. Like um, you know, I, I just moved to London. I was young and I didn't really have any commitments, and I was working in a like a, as a receptionist and. And it was just really exciting. We'd go every weekend, we'd go and protest, do something, and uh, we'd end up in the, the press and, you know, all of these really important journalists wanted to interview us and talk to us. And the government was holding briefings about how to respond to us. And, you know, we really did scare the government. They really seemed afraid by what we were going to do. And, you know, we'd, you'd meet new friends all the time and have these, like, really fascinating political conversations. and everybody kind of partied really hard and you know had new relationships and new experiences and and the best thing about direct action as well which is was what I mainly did was that, is that you really feel like you're making an impact on in the moment that you do it it's it's not like a march where you kind of walk from one point to another and then you go home or or like a you know signing a petition or something like that you actually have an impact on something in the moment you know you shut a shop down for a day you sort of stop it doing business and it can be a little bit um, tense because the police will, will come and, and you'll get into a bit of a scuffle with them. So you really feel like you're taking on power in some way. And, and that's really, really exciting. What are the, broadly speaking, what are the parallels that you see to that time in that movement with today in the anti-Trump movement, which is obviously based mostly in the U.S., but you also note is uh, sort of launching in the U.K.? I mean, obviously, they're, they're not exactly the same, the two movements. There's lots of differences between them, and, and the political situation has changed a great deal um, since 2010 and 11, which is when the anti-austerity movement was, was at its height. Um, but the parallels for me, the first of all, is uh, one of them is um, this idea that Trump will be impeached. 
Like, I feel like every day there's a new news story about, like, finally, this is the moment that he's going to be impeached. You know, we found this tweet from 2012 where he said that an incompetent president should be impeached. So he's impeaching himself. You know, it's like, <laughs> and I just think, you know, why? Why would he? Why would he be impeached? I mean, why would he want to? Like, why would he Why would he want to step down? I mean, obviously, those are two different things. But why? who's going to do it? Like, where is this coming from? Where is the power that's going to impeach him? I mean, if you look at Nixon, like there was hard evidence that Nixon himself was implicated in criminal activity and that resulted in impeachment. And I just think unless the same thing is revealed for Trump, which it may well do, but until that moment, I just don't see where this power is going to come from that will impeach him. And it is exactly the same in the anti-austerity movement. We had like a, a coalition government. That was, and that's really unusual here um, with our electoral system. We, we rarely, rarely have coalitions. I think the last one was sort of in the 40s. And um, the coalition, the, the strong partner, the overwhelmingly strong partner was the Tories. And then the weak partner with like much fewer um, MPs was the Liberal Democrats. And the Liberal Democrats had promised that they wouldn't introduce like college tuition fees. Um, and that was their, one of their big selling points. Um, in the campaign and then they did so we had this idea like the student movement in particular you know would, would do things like hand them letters and be like you know you must step down you, you, you've broken a promise and all this kind of stuff and I mean at the, at the time I sort of remember really thinking that it could work and 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 the student movement did succeed in, in uh, almost persuading the Liberal Democrats to not to vote in favour of tuition fees but ultimately, like this was like a marginal, like political party. I mean, they're like the Jill Stein of Britain, you know, like the Liberal Democrats. Like, it's like saying to Jill Stein, "Oh, why don't you become Secretary of State?" and then be like, "I'll oh, give that up." Like, it's just not going to happen, you know. Like, it just it just wasn't going to happen. I mean, so I think that's, and there was a really in both cases, I feel like it, it's mistaking something you want for for something that is likely. And I think the the better question to ask is. If he's going to be impeached, who's going to do it? How is it going to happen? Where, what is the process of that? And you know, how likely is it? So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing I think is the belief that these protests will continue with the same level of momentum throughout the entirety of Trump's, at least his first term. And like, let's all pray not a second. Um, hey, let me actually stop you there because I wanted to focus on that first idea for a second. That yeah, go on. Uh, I think that this sentiment is so widespread in the U.S. that it is in part rooted that in the in the the fact that every day brings some new batch of horrors uh, or absurdities in the Trump administration that people just feel like this literally cannot go on. I mean, how could it go on? Like, surely it must want to collapse under the weight of its of its own absurdity. Um, Mm-hmm. But we all know that that is not how politics works, right? That that there has to be an actual like a countervailing force that can can force the uh, force one side to take some kind of action. Otherwise, the the status quo can go on forever. Like there's there is no real adult who uh, is stepping in in the United States to you know force Trump to do anything. There's no one stepping in to force him to use a secured phone to tweet from, much less like force him out of office overall, you know what I mean? And you mentioned Richard Nixon. I mean, we I think we think of Nixon's impeachment as a well, he did all this awful stuff and and it was found out and so of course then he had to go. But like no, it was an actually a, a partisan battle and one 
side of that battle had to win in order to uh, to, to almost get him impeached uh, to, to eventually lead to his resignation. It's None of this stuff is automatic in any way. Yeah, I mean, and I think, like, you know, I think we need to, like, separate, like, liberals and then, like, people on the left a little bit. Because I think, actually, a lot of the impeachment talk is coming from, like, liberals. And I think um, it's, it's not just that they sort of think, well, this is so absurd. It's also that there's this, like, idea that it, this was never supposed to happen, right? Like, Trump was never supposed to be the president. I mean, it's nuts that this guy is the president. I mean, even, like, me, I'm a I'm a left-winger who's written a lot about Latin America, so it doesn't really... I don't really have much, I you know, faith in the idea that being the president of the United States is an honourable thing and that the American state is, like, a benevolent force. But even I'm, like, this guy is, like, the celebrity apprentice guy, you know? Like, it, it's crazy that he's, a, he's the president and... and he only kind of reinforces the craziness every day by behaving in the way that he does. And so I think there's, there's this, like, it's not just that the left sort of thinking, you know, we can, we can get rid of him through sort of uh, protest. It's also like, there are a lot of liberals who are like, this, this will be reversed because it's almost like a kind of, the natural order has been disrupted by this guy becoming president. And there's no way that that can be sustained. But the thing is, for me, like Trump is the natural order. You know, I went to, I was at his inauguration. I went to see it and the kind of, the sort of pomp and circumstance of it, like the sort of ludicrousness of it, of, you know, these sort of people marching up and down the mall in Washington dressed in sort of these like extravagant clothes, like, and all of the TV cameras everywhere and the glitz and the lights. Like Trump is, that's his world. Like he's way more suited to that than, than Obama. And, and also, like, as you say, like, where is, who are the adults here? Like, actually, a lot of this stuff is just, you know, this idea that kind of, you know, Western democracies are these really, like, upstanding, you know, important things with, like, really robust institutions. Actually, they're just made up of people. And, like, Trump's the most powerful guy in the country now. So where, like, where is it going to come from, this, this sort of belief that, that someone's going to step in like who's going to step in i just don't i just don't understand why people think it's going to happen like i hope it does i, I guess but i just don't like I, I just can't see the answer to that like where, where is it where is it coming from this this thing that will impeach him what is it you know well there are huge numbers of people who are out in the streets regularly right now as you saw in dc uh and mm -hmm. it does feel like that they will be there forever. You say something along the lines of that this must be a new permanent fixture in American politics. Uh, but we know that that isn't true, that eventually people leave the streets, they get tired of marching, uh, and that you know, eventually the, the, the massive numbers, or even record-breaking numbers in the United States that, are, that have taken to the streets will peter out. So... You you saw that you said in the UK anti austerity movement. Um, what does this reality that these numbers will eventually die down mean for movement organizers? Well, you know, I was watching a video today of um, people in the US going to town hall meetings and disrupting them, and basically saying to their representatives, you know, holding them to account and saying you need to stand up to Trump and all this kind of stuff, and you need to sort of protect migrants in America 
And that actually did remind me of the anti-austerity movement because we used to do that. We used to go to council's um, budget meetings where they would make spending cuts and disrupt them and like try to force councillors to refuse to pass the budget. Um, and I think what I was thinking when I was watching it is if this was a healthy democracy where protests would, you know, just organically last for four years, then this kind of stuff would have been happening under Obama. Because it, it, in order for protests to last years and years and years, there needs to be a culture of permanent political engagement within a society where people, like lots of people feel empowered to go to like local meetings, to be involved in politics, to go out onto the street and to engage in politics and to make sure their voice is heard. But actually what has happened is that wasn't really a feature of politics in the Obama administration. And it's become a feature of politics since Trump's got elected. And what that suggests to me is all of the activity that we're seeing now is not the start of something long-term. It's, it's actually like a visceral reaction to, to something horrible happening right now. And people feel impulsively like I must do something now. But I don't think that the foundations to have a permanent political movement that lasts like four years are, is, are there now, because if they were, there would have been more protest, there would have been more political engagement under Obama. So I think probably like what will happen um, unless activists, you know, try to address this issue is that like, when it becomes clear that Trump isn't gonna step down and when, people move from like outrage to despair, then the protests will peter out. Like at some point Trump is gonna become part of normal life in America. Like it, that just has to happen because he's only been president for a month. Like, at, you know, at some point it's not sustainable to just be living in this constant state, state of outrage where like news seems to happen on an hourly basis. Like at some point it's gonna have to fade into the background. And when that happens, like, I, do, I think it will, I mean, I don't think it will definitely peter out, but I think unless activists acknowledge that that's a danger and try to do things to avoid that happening, I think that is like the natural way that it will go, from my experience. I think that's all true, but we also know that when social movements are able to win actual victories, it, that can also keep people out in the streets because they feel like their presence there is actually having a tangible impact on their world. And, you know, it's been a mixed bag so far, but we have seen things like the uh, confirmation vote for Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos be split. You know, Vice President Pence had to come in and break the tie in order for her to get uh, confirmed. We saw the airport protests that happened in different cities in the United States, uh, just, just conveniently, uh, you know, totally by coincidence, I'm sure, uh, at the same time happened as the, the judge reversed Trump's um, ban on refugees and immigrants uh, uh, coming from um, majority Muslim countries. And so victories are happening, and uh, those can also, you know, provide fuel for the, for the fire to keep people in the streets, right? Yeah, I mean, like, don't get me wrong. I, I've, I think it's really important for me to emphasize that I'm not saying this is all a waste of time. It's going to fail. Um, I definitely don't think that. And I think, um, you know, the, the 
victories around the travel ban were really, really exciting. And they show that like the weakness of of the Trump administration and indeed like the weakness of any government. I think the main thing that I learned in the anti-austerity movement, the positive thing that I learned is that actually the gov governments are like terrified of people. You know, they, most people have the attitude that why protest, it doesn't change anything, they don't care. But what I experienced in the anti-austerity movement is actually like the government is terrified of protest. It's terrified of people rising up. And it's definitely true that um, victories, I think, from, in my experience, are like the main motivator. So when we um, when we were organising about tax avoidance with UK and Cup, like it was in the, you know, it was in the. Uh, papers like every weekend and these companies would be putting out sort of embarrassed statements about their tax affairs you know all the time and even at one point we organized um 45 protests up and down the UK about Starbucks who we said were avoiding tax and they freaked out tried several times to meet us privately and every time they tried to meet us privately we would just publicly uh, publish the correspondence um, until eventually they agreed to pay £10 million in tax um, as a way of trying to uh, stop protests. And obviously all it did was it made the protests even more well attended because people really felt like it was working and that was a real mo motivator. So, yeah, I think um, and I think that's um, another thing, you know, that I didn't include in the piece, but I would definitely say that the anti-Trump movement should be doing is that when there are victories, claim them. Like it's really important that you say to people, your protesting did this, like going out on the street and like putting your body in the way and like giving up your weekend and giving up your time with your family and your time doing fun things, like other fun things, because protesting is fun. Like, you know, um, that was worthwhile. You won. And I think, you know, I think that is like, that will be a main, a big motivator. Like I think victories are quite, self-sustaining in movements i just think that you know um outrage isn't is what i was trying to say earlier like victories are self-sustaining but outrage and like horror that those are not and so those can't be what people rely on uh to sustain an anti-trump movement for the next four years like you're right that the the feeling of victory and the feeling that success is possible like that, you're right, is much more of a motivator and that, that should be more of a focus, I think. So you bring up the question of structure in movements in the piece. And this is one that has proved pretty vexing, I think, for the left in recent years, especially with the rise in a kind of horizontalist thinking that we definitely saw in Occupy Wall Street. So how did the anti-austerity movement think or not think about structure and how should the those now in the US who are opposing Trump think about it? Well, I mean, you know, the uh, union movement and the labor movement in Britain was a very, it was quite an important part of the anti-austerity movement. And obviously their structures are very, very hierarchical. And for a, a year or so, I was in the sort of funny position of working for union movement, which has a very hierarchical structure and then organizing with a horizontal group. So, you know, I kind of had like the experience of both and and both had their pros and cons. I think 
what I would say about horizontal organizing is that um, when you're in those groups, activists will often put forward the idea of consensus based or horizontal organizing as like an efficient way of doing things like this is the efficient way of doing things. But actually, I often think I often used to think that it it wasn't actually about efficiency. It was about it, an ideology like it, it was an ideological belief in how things should be organized. And consensus was really an ideological thing for, for a lot of activists. And so the fact that it was inefficient a lot of the time, in fact, I remember very clearly one meeting that I went to um, where we were trying to hook up with other groups doing similar work, where the meeting was nine hours long and not a single decision was made in that meeting. And it was just excruciating. I mean, and that's just one meeting. I mean, you know, we used to have meetings once a week and they would always last till like midnight or one in the morning and it would just be like pulling teeth, trying to get kind of any kind of decision. And then, like, as I mentioned in the piece, like one of the big problems, and I know this has been written about a lot, like I know that Jacobin published a piece about this and there's the famous essay, The Tyranny of Structurelessness, about this, where actually the, the kind of imbalances and the oppressions and privileges that exist in everyday life often replicate themselves in social movements and sometimes when you insist on horizontalism what that means is the people who naturally have more confidence and naturally see themselves as leaders and are viewed by society as leaders tend to rise to the top you know in other words like the white middle class guys tend to rule the roost you know i was part of like a group where um we we were involved in one action um that was an arrestable action and uh, only a small group of people at the centre of the organising group knew any of the details about it. And obviously that was for, for security reasons, partly. But it was never really disclosed to the rest of the group why these particular people knew and what they were doing and, and you know, how the decisions had been made and that kind of thing. You know, so... And then also, like, the, the white men would often be the ones that would end up going on TV and end up doing all of the kind of exciting, glamorous activism work, where, whereas the women would take notes, they would, like, reply to emails, and they would uh, cook dinner for everybody else at the meetings, like... Didn't anybody think about the optics? I mean, in this particular group, it came to a head. There, were, there had to be some work done on... on gender politics within the group and then yes it did but no initially like no um no it didn't it didn't really that no one really did think about the optics it, it, yeah it is pretty like it is pretty bad on the left that kind of thing in my experience like endemic racism and sexism is a problem and I think sometimes these sort of insistence on horizontal structures can make that stuff like it harder to talk about it's difficult to talk to find a language to, to communicate about these things when what we're telling each other is that we're all equals and we're all equal participants. So the question of solidarity uh, is an important one. So assumedly, while there were large numbers of radicals that were involved in the UK anti-austerity movement, the majority of people there were not. And this is certainly true in the anti-Trump movement in the United States. Um, so this question of the proper relationship to people whose politics are different from your own, or in some issues, even like diametrically opposed. Um, th that question has come up a lot in the U.S. recently, both on the question of the, like, the reactionary white working class portion of Trump's base, 
uh, and what the proper relationship is to them and can these people be won over to a more uh, you know, social democratic politics um, as well as the more liberal slice of people who are out in the streets opposing Trump who I think make up the, the overwhelming majority of those numbers which obviously it's good that they're in the streets but they're like you know holding pictures of Trump kissing Putin or something which is bad so how should we think about that question of organizing with people with with you know different or even very different political views from ours? I mean, first of all, can I just say, like, as someone who's on the Women's March in Washington, it is so weird in American protests that, like, you know, these kind of left, what I kind of assumed would be a left wing protest, that there's all these like banners with hammers and sickles on them with a line through them. And like quite a lot of like anti-socialist rhetoric, like that would never happen in Britain. It was really strange. I saw this uh, activist in Washington, an anti-Trump activist and a pro-Trump activist having an argument over who hated socialism more out of the two of them. Really odd. Um, but anyway, um, I mean, I think um, it's a, it's a really thorny question, but I do think that you know now we have this whole discourse around like being woke and understanding you know intersectionality and different kinds of oppression and there's a really sound ideological foundation to that you know like Kimberly Crenshaw who coined the term intersectionality did so because of a discrimination case that black women wanted to um to bring against um their employers and they weren't allowed to um bring it as women and they weren't allowed to bring it as black people and so that's how the idea of like intersectionality came about that those two oppressions together like worsened their situation so there is like a really strong ideological basis for these issues that that affects people in material terms and that affects their everyday lives but i do think that like the left um in in britain and in the us suffers from a kind of political immaturity where it has a certain standard of like wokeness and if you don't meet that standard then you're excommunicated and I think that's just not really helpful like um most people are not woke like 99% of people are not radical left-wingers like and that sucks I would like them to be but they're not and you know, on the Women's March in Washington, there was a, if you wanted to criticise it, there was a lot to criticise, you know. On the other hand, the vast majority of people that I met there, of women that I met there, were people who'd like never done any kind of protesting before. And they were there with their daughters and their mothers and their friends. And they'd given up their weekend and they'd spent money to travel across the country to make their voices heard. And that, to me, is an amazing and exciting thing. And we need to engage with that, however thorny and problematic it might be, and it will be, like, the left has to engage with that in some way. You can't just dismiss, like, a million women on the streets because it isn't, doesn't reach the standard that you want it to reach. And, of course, it's going to be deeply problematic. Of course, it's going to be a bit capitalist. Of course, it's going to be racist in some ways, and it's going to probably even be sexist because people will bring their bad politics with them because the world isn't what we want it to be. And like people Im imbibe the politics that are in public discourse and those politics are bad. I mean, Trump's the president, they're bad. So like we need to, but we need to, if, if they're, 
interested and willing to join our movement, then we need to be ready to engage with that. And we need to kind of deal with the fact that they're not going to be the perfect woke activists that we might want them to be. Um, and in terms of like the, the white working class, how we should deal with them, well, I spent a long time in the US talking to lots of Trump supporters, um, particularly at the inauguration where I was like sandwiched in a queue with them for like three hours, whether I really wanted to be or not. And, um, you know, there are a lot of areas where I felt like that's just a no, you know, like their attitude towards race politics, you know, and some some people I spoke to was really something that the, the left should not be compromising with and should make quite clear as unacceptable. But then there were other things as well, like good jobs, decent wages, like free health care, like every single Trump supporter I spoke to said that they wanted universal health care. And I think that that needs to be, there needs to be some kind of intellectual conversation about can we engage with that? What do we do with that? Rather than dismissing these people out of hand. You know, I think it, it's a complicated issue, but the fact is that this guy is president. You know, most people, well, not most people actually, but a lot of people voted for him. And if he's going to be weakened in any way, then it will need a broad coalition. And, and that means accepting working with people who aren't where we want them to be right now. But you take them on a journey, like that's what radicalism is, right? That we radicalize other people to be like us, you know, political, we educate them politically that's part of revolution i think what i was trying to argue in the piece and like what i believe generally is that is not that we're destined to lose is not it's i don't think that i've never thought that i've always i've always believed that the left is going to win even when all of the evidence points otherwise i've always kind of believed like we will win i mean you know how, how could you continue otherwise i think and i but i think what i'm trying to argue for and what i was trying to argue for in my piece is just that we like, it's just the Gramscian position, like the pessimism of the intellect and the optimism of the will, which is just that we have to engage with the circumstances around us and kind of, and be smart and be strategic and, you know, be a bit evidence-based, you know, like look at the tactics that have gone before us, how well have they worked? You know, I think that's what I'm advocating. You know, I'm not, I'm not really making a comment about how successful the anti-Trump movement is likely to be. I'm just saying that, you know, learn from our mistakes. Like there's material out there that'll show how to build a movement that can really last. And there's certainly material out there that'll show what not to do and in engage with it and, and be clever and critical and incisive. And, and like, you know, I think that's how, how you get somewhere. I hope anyway. Well, Ellie, thank you very much. You're welcome.